Hello, everybody, uh, and Kia Ora. Uh, we have almost 500 people registered for today's session. Uh, welcome to you all and uh, thanks for joining us. So in today's webinar, we will talk um, about the outcomes of a project that looked at what improvements uh, can be made to the guide uh, to road design based on recently released Austroads research. My name is Ekaterina. I'm a communications officer at Austroads, and I will be moderating today's session together with uh, Madeline Bikavak from the Australian Road Research Board. Madeline will moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. First of all, I would like to acknowledge uh, the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the original people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Road Safety and Design Program, which is managed by Michael Newstick. Um, a bit of housekeeping, so our presenters will speak for about 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The report and the slides for today's presentation can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. To send us your questions for the Q&A, uh, please use the question icon on that sidebar. If your question relates to any particular slide, uh, include the number of that slide in your message to help us answer your question as best as we can. Um, also, let us know if you're experiencing any technical problems, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely uh, with your internet connection. So closing your browser and um, rejoining the session via your email registration link usually helps. Um, this session has been recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. Um, and if you listen to podcasts, you can find Austroads in your podcast app. And it gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenters for today, um, Noel O'Callaghan and Malcolm Mark. So we will first hear from Malcolm. Uh, he's a civil engineer at the Australian Road Research Board uh, within the transport safety team. Malcolm specializes in road design, road safety and traffic engineering uh, with experience uh, within state and local government. Our second presenter, Noel, is a principal professional engineer uh, in the transport safety team in the Australian Road Research Board Adelaide's office. Noel specialises in road design, um, having had extensive experience in the South Australian Transport Department. Noel is a member of the Austroads um, Road Design Task Force and the Austroads uh, Safety Barrier Assessment Panel. Welcome to you both um, and uh, over to you, Malcolm. Thanks, Katerina. Uh, thank you everyone for joining today. Um, just going to start off by uh, quickly running through some of the project background. So just going to start with an introduction to our project team. Um, so our project team for phase two of this project comprised of um, our team members, Madeline Beckerback, Noel O'Callaghan and myself, uh, with Don Hicks and James Hughes as Osroads uh, project managers. Um, the review team consisted of uh, the Austroads Project Working Group, which was Don and James, uh, the Road Design Task Force, and the Austroads Board. Uh, here we've got the members of the uh, Road Design Task Force uh, that were on the task force during um, the project. 
uh, we acknowledge uh, David Bolan, who was the Ausgrove uh, Road Safety and Design Program Manager when the project commenced, uh, as well as current Program Manager Michael Neustieg, who oversaw this project through to conclusion. So just a bit about um, the project background. Um, so uh, as the title sort of reads, this project was about ensuring new information from recent Ausroads road safety research reports made its way into the guide to road design. Um, the project was divided into two phases. Um, so phase one uh, was concerned with collating the new road safety information, which uh, was currently in, in the various uh, Ausroads research reports. Um, and, and we needed to collate it because it wasn't easily uh, accessed by those working in, in the road industry. Um, so combining this into information into the guide, um, you know, it would make it a lot easier for road designers to incorporate um, some of this new road safety research, um, incorporate safe system uh, and our other contemporary uh, road safety practice into their designs and their decision making. Um, so phase one of this project reviewed 30 Ostroads roads, road safety research reports uh, and identified where amendments could be made to the uh, guide to road design. Um, check out either of the phase one or phase two project reports um, for a full list of what those 30 road research reports uh, were. Um, and we'd like to acknowledge the efforts of Peter Orman, who undertook phase one of this project um, with James Hughes as the Ostroads project manager. So um, phase two of this project took those recommendations from phase one and implemented the changes and updates to the guide to road design. Uh, updating the guide to road design was divided into two publishing milestones um, due to the volume of the recommendations. Um, that were made under phase one. Um, so some of these updates have already been published um, and some will be published this year. I uh, will touch on um, that a bit more at the end of the webinar. So uh, we're gonna run through um, some of the key changes that have been and will be made to the guide to road design. Um, we're just gonna run through sort of uh, the key reports that, that had recommendations. So starting with uh, report number one, which was the safe system assessment framework. Um, so the safe system approach has been adopted by uh, Australia and New Zealand since 2004, um, but there's been some difficulty uh, amongst some practitioners in integrating safe system into their um, road infrastructure projects. Um, Ostro has produced the safe system assessment framework as a uh, practitioner assessment tool, um, which assists in the methodical consideration of safe system objectives uh, in road infrastructure projects. So the framework considers key crash types that lead to fatal and serious crash outcomes, as well as the exposure likelihood and severity associated with these crashes. Um, it provides prompts to ensure each pillar of the safe system is considered. A treatment hierarchy is also provided to help identify the most effective treatments that might be used to minimise death and serious injury. So as part of uh, phase two, we've added reference and guidance uh, on the safe system 
assessment framework um, into part one of the guide to road design in the two sections shown on this slide. Uh, report number six we've got here uh, was um, achieving safe system speeds on urban arterial roads. Um, so this report presents information on speed as a contributor to urban arterial road crashes and provides treatments that can be used to address speed at intersection and mid-block locations. So the intention in using these treatments is to move closer to safe system objectives by helping to avoid uh, death and serious injury uh, when crashes do occur. Um, the main focus uh, is on road engineering based treatments, but um, information is also provided in the report on other approaches that may be used, such as enforcement and in vehicle devices. Um, so, examples of mid block treatments um, in this report that are consistent with the safe system objectives um, they've, they've been incorporated into uh, Appendix B of uh, the Guide to Road Design Part 3. Um, and these treatments um, include pedestrian refuges, medians, lower speed limits and variable speed limit signs. Um, these are generally urban or urban fringe treatments where the need for multi-lane capacity makes um, effective speed management um, difficult in some instances. So that they're now included in Appendix B of Part 3. Um, some examples of um, intersection treatments from this report that are consistent with um, safe system objectives are roundabouts and, and lower speed limits at or within the vicinity of intersections. Um, the extent of these treatments will vary uh, depending on the environment and how difficult um, effective self-explaining speed management is to achieve. Um, so some brief guidance has been included in part four uh, in this update. Uh, report number 10 uh, was infrastructure improvements to reduce motorcycle casualties. Um, this report presents the technical findings of a study which sought to identify um, effective infrastructure improvements to reduce motorcycle crash risk uh, and, and crash severity. Um, and it was based on how riders perceive, uh, respond and react to infrastructure they encounter. Um, one of the findings from the research report was the benefits of providing uh, wider lanes and wider shoulders to assist um, motorcyclists to evade hazards uh, and for recovery, particularly on curves. Um, so some additional guidance has been included in um, part three, section 4.3.4 and 7.9, uh, shown on the screens there. Um, and the guidance describes the benefits of wider shoulders and wider lanes um, allowing motorcyclists to avoid hazards, uh, providing a buffer to and providing a buffer to um, vehicles in the opposing lane. Um, the the wider shoulders, uh, wider lanes particularly, uh, need to be balanced, however, because um, they can encourage um, higher operating speeds. We've got an example on the screen here um, of the benefits of providing the uh, wider shoulders or lanes. So the red dashed line uh, represents a motorcyclist path if no shoulders provided. Um, you can see they're in quite a vulnerable position if the opposing vehicle there crosses the centre line. Um, if there's no shoulder, they, they don't really have anywhere to go. 
Um, but if a shoulder was to be provided, uh, blue, the blue line illustrates how the motorcyclist can um, sort of evade that oncoming vehicle which has crossed the centre line. Um, also from report number 10, we've, um, we've got a new section now in um, part three, uh, which is section 7.1.1. Um, and it discusses and provides guidance on motorcycle considerations when designing um, the horizontal alignment of a road. So um, one of the things is when there's a little consistency in horizontal curves, um, a higher demand might be placed on the motorcyclist particularly if the motorcyclist has selected a riding path that is not suited to the curve. Um, a change in riding path on a curve results in braking, um, changing direction, which increases the likelihood uh, of a motorcycle destabilizing. So an example shown on the left, uh, in the left figure. Um, so the blue line illustrates the riding path uh, for a compound curve where the, where the radius is, is tightening. And the purple line uh, represents the riding path uh, of the curve uh, with a constant radius. So if um, the presence of the compound curve isn't known to the motorcyclist, they might select a riding path for a constant curve and, and midway through the curve, they might be required to, to change um, their path um, by using increased angles or braking. And then over on the right of the screen, uh, it's, it sort of illustrates the risk uh, of a motorcycle destabilizing on a curve um, when braking or you know, sudden changes in riding paths occur. Sticking with um, this uh, report 10, um, so currently uh, considerations for various road users the design of intersections can be found in uh, part four, table 3.1. Um, and through phase one of the project, it was identified that um, motorcyclists weren't included in this table as a, as a road user group. So um, as part of this project, we've, we've put in some additional guidance into this table for specific motorcycle uh, cons motorcyclist considerations. So, um, these are things such as um, drainage pits and covers um, being located outside of travel lanes, um, uh, pit covers being motorcycle friendly, any gratings being uh, aligned transverse to the travel path, um, uh, pavement markings located in braking, uh, accelerating or turning locations um, can affect the stability of a motorcycle uh, if they don't have uh, sufficient surface texture. Um, ad adequate clearance should be provided um, from carriageway to roadside hazards such as posts and poles, um, especially on curves where motorcyclists uh, may need to lean. It was also noted in this report, um, curbing and aprons at roundabouts um, presented risks to motorcyclists. Um, the general line through a roundabout for a motorcyclist is, is generally a lot straighter um, than that of a car or a truck. Um, the report suggested that the guide needed to reinforce, uh, I guess, the press preference to, to reduce the amount of um, aprons and apron lips used at uh, 
roundabouts uh, in favour of uh, implementing a larger roundabout. Um, so uh, part 4B section 4.6.3 discusses the use of encroachment areas um, like, like this to allow for large vehicles to negotiate a roundabout. Um, the encroachment areas may be raised, which is the hazard for motorcyclists and, and cyclists. Um, from a safety perspective, um, you know, implementing a larger roundabout to accommodate all vehicle movements on the circulating pavement um, is preferred over a small roundabout with um, raised aprons, but this, this isn't always achievable um, due to, I guess, the large footprint required and um, which might make it implausible for the brown field sites. Um, but we've added some, some additional discussion in section 4.6.3 on this. Moving on to report number 11, which was uh, road design for heavy vehicles. Um, this report identifies improvements in the current road design standards uh, that will move more safe, uh, this would more safely accommodate um, heavy vehicle movements into the future. Um, heavy vehicle crashes across Australia and New Zealand continue to be a major road, uh, road safety issue. So the purpose of this study was to provide recommendations to update road design criteria um, to better accommodate uh, heavy vehicles. So starting with um, the design vehicle, so with regards to, to the design vehicle, historically um, there's four general classes of vehicles that have been selected for design purposes, being uh, the 19 metre prime mover and semi-trailer, 12 and a half metre uh, single unit uh, truck or bus, uh, an 8.8 metre service vehicle and a five metre design car. So um, we put in some additional guidance into part three, section uh, 2.2.7 um, regarding the appropriate choice of design and check vehicle uh, for the classification and um, function of the road. Um, so larger vehicles than those four mentioned may be more appropriate as the design vehicle uh, on roads carrying you know, high volumes of V-doubles or road trains. Um, report 11 also indicated that batter slopes of one in 10 are recoverable for trucks. Um, so this guidance is already contained in some sections of um, part three, but we've just um, made some amendments to section 4.4.3 and 4.5, um, just the consistency, which now recommend um, using a one in 10 or flatter um, batter where truck volumes are high. Uh, also out of um, report 11, um, so previous guidance or current guidance in um, part three would indicate that medians greater than 20 metres in width provide enough room for uh, virtually all errant vehicles to come safely to rest without encroaching into the opposing carriageway. Um, but recent um, research in Crossroads improving roadside safety report indicates that some vehicles were found to travel in excess of this um, over the median. So um, the advice now is that um, rural medians should have a barrier system installed 
and if one is to be omitted, then this decision should be justified using a, a risk assessment. Um, so we've updated section 4.7.2 of uh, part three uh, with this guidance. We've made reference to part six um, for a risk assessment procedure that can could be used. Um, for heavy vehicles, so uh, I guess higher container barriers to, to, to stop heavy vehicles um, can cause extensive damage to cars and, and generally only installed where consequence of a heavy vehicle leaving the road uh, is catastrophic. Uh, and again, um, a risk assessment should be carried out to determine the use of such a barrier. So I'm now going to hand over to Noel, who's going to uh, run through uh, some more of the key updates that we've made to the guide to the design. Thanks, Malcolm. Yes, I'm going to take you through a few more of the of the uh, reports that we looked at in the updating of this series. Uh, the next one, which flows in a bit from the last one about medians. So uh, the guide, there's some guidance on median and centerline treatments to reduce head-on casualty. So this report represents a compendium of local and overseas practice and experience in minimising the risk and severity of head-on crashes. The guidance on the median treatments listed on the screen have been incorporated into a new section in part three and will be discussed in the next few slides. Painted medians are a low cost option that improve lateral separation of vehicles and discourage overtaking where the roadway is too narrow to install a raised median. The additional benefits uh, of narrowing the lanes and the shoulders uh, to allow the installation of medians can help to reduce travel speed. The drivers have more opportunity to avoid a potential collision, while the severity of any crash that may occur is reduced. Also in this median treatment section uh, of pavement bars, Pavement bars, they're also referred to as safety bars. Um, they're raised blocks located within a painted median used to augment the median. So you can see those, those yellow blocks in the photograph. They're tra traversable, but um, not, not readily. So they provide a strong audio tactile response, discourage drivers from crossing them, except in an emergency. Uh, they also improve visibility of the median, particularly in wet conditions. Uh, by discouraging drivers from traversing the median, pavement bars also discourage illegal overtaking manoeuvres. So they're useful where raised medians may not be appropriate, perhaps because you haven't got enough pavement width, or there's a lack of lighting, or the effect that of uh, surface strange, but they should only be used on roads with uh, speeds less than 70 kilometres an hour and roadway widths greater than 6.8 metres. 
Another treatment in this section on median treatments is uh, the wide, wide centerline treatment. Wide centerlines are a type of, they're like a painted median that we looked at before, which typically provides a one metre wide narrow median, increasing the separation of the vehicles, but with negligible effect on vehicle travel speeds. Audio tactile line marking increases the effectiveness of this treatment, alerting drivers that they should they deviate from their lane. Uh, they can generally be achieved within the space available on a two-way undivided road by narrowing the shoulders and lane widths or by a combination of the two. Reducing the width of the lanes will have the effect of concentrating wheel paths, which may exacerbate rutting in certain situations. So where a road carries significant numbers of heavy vehicles, this may require further consideration. So these are similar to the painted meetings that we looked at in a couple of slides ago, but they don't have the diagonal stripes because the lines themselves are about a metre apart. Uh, it, it's essentially a couple of barrier lines, but they've been separated a bit to provide more separation. Also in this guidance on median treatment, uh, median turning bays, as, as seen on the screen. The median turning bays are primarily a treatment to allow turning movements and reducing the instance of rear-end crashes, but they also help to reduce head-on crashes. So the first benefit is that they provide the driver with a more protected location to judge acceptable gaps in the oncoming flow, and that reduces driver pressure, encouraging safer decisions. So you've got more time to make the turn from the road without, without feeling the the pressure of, of vehicles approaching in your lane. Secondly, they're like a painted medium as, as well, so they provide that um, separation between opposing vehicles. There are, so they're called medium turning bays or medium turning lanes. They're, they're, the interchangeable terms there for that treatment. Uh, just a reminder to the audience to send through your questions for the Q&A. To help us answer your question, please let us know the slide number your question relates to if possible. And you can see there on the screen where you need to, need to click to enter in a question. And the uh, next report we dealt with was the Safe System Practice Amendments to the Guide to Road Design, which is an internal report that was a, a meant to, uh, as the audience, the updating of the, of the Guide to Road Design. Uh, and it reviewed the Guide to Road Design for current reference to the Safe System Principles. Guide to Road Design Part 1 has been updated to include reference to the movement and place framework. And there's a, there's a diagram shown on the screen of what that, what that uh, attempts to display. 
The movement in place framework recognises that roads and streets serve two primary roles. Firstly, to facilitate the movement of people and goods, that's the movement part, and also to act as places for people. That by defining the function of the road within this framework, that determines how the road can be managed. For example, a motorway has the prime function of rapidly moving high volumes of people and goods with little pedestrian activity or presence. A road which has high number of pedestrian movement, such as in a commercial or retail centres, has an emphasis on land use interacting with the road, but still provides for some traffic flow. Still on this report, uh, we've got a section in part 4C, which is for um, motorways. Um, there's a section about pedestrians. Pedestrians should are normally prohibited from entering open freeways, and that's controlled by the erection of signs at the ramp terminals with the motor roads. However, there should be provision made for drivers of broken down vehicles to reach the help telephone safely along the shoulder, shoulders of freeways. Uh, consideration should also be given to the travel path available along the roadside areas for these drivers to reach help telephones with some clearance from the passing traffic. There's been less emphasis uh, recently on the provision of help telephones, but they're still because most people have mobile phones. But it's still important to provide those safe areas behind the barriers because if a car breaks down on a freeway, the driver should exit the vehicle and move behind the barrier because it's not safe to stay even. Even on emergency stopping lanes, it's not safe to stay in the vehicle and stop the vehicle. So, a level area behind the safety barrier system is encouraged to provide pedestrians from breaking their vehicles with a separate travel path from the freeway. So, that's detailed in that section in part 4C. The next report that we're looking at is bicycle safety at roundabouts. This report investigates how the geometric design components of a roundabout may contribute to bicycle crashes. An Australian and New Zealand crash analysis found that most of the crashes occurred at urban local road roundabouts in 50 kilometres of hour speed limit zones. The crashes predominantly occurred on the circulating lane near the entry for an approach road and were right adjacent type crashes. In designing a roundabout, appropriate entry speeds need to be adopted. And these speeds depend on the function and type of the approach roads and the expected road users. As a guide for an appropriately designed roundabout, the speed may be 50 kilometres an hour for an arterial road and 25 to 30 for a local residential road. However, the safe system threshold for a pedestrian or cyclist crash is only 30 kilometres an hour shown on the graph. That graph is, um, <clears throat> has been used extensively in the safe system approach and shows the uh, 
vulnerability of people in crashes and the, and the speeds involved. Therefore, the design should aim for a roundabout entry and circulating speeds of 30 kilometres an hour or below, unless a separated bicycle facility is provided. So those sections of part 4B, shown on the slide, have been updated to include this guidance. So continuing on, on that theme, roads that have low traffic speeds, that is less than 30 kilometres an hour, and relatively low volumes, that is less than 3,000 vehicles a day, generally enable cyclists to safely share the road with other traffic. Specific guidance on geometric methods to achieve entry and circulating speeds of less than 30 kilometres an hour are still being developed and trialled. So one method, which is uh, referred to in part four of the Bounty Road Design, is to create an entry path radius of 20 metres or smaller. An example of how this can be achieved at an existing local roundabout is shown on the screen where the modified yellow curb lines create greater horizontal deflection through the roundabout. Uh, still on bicycle safety at roundabouts, bicycle paths at, at roundabouts has been addressed by looking at curb ramps. Curb ramps can be used to ensure a smooth transition between an on-road bicycle lane and an off-road ramp. So when you're approaching a roundabout and you need to get off the road, uh, the ramp is provided. These curb ramps are longer and wider than a traditional footpath curb ramps to ensure that a sudden change in travel speed or direction is not required. They should be located well in advance of the roundabout so that the manoeuvre can be completed without disrupting the traffic flow close to the entry into the roundabout. An example is shown on the aerial image on the slide. So the ramp is shown in the middle on the bottom end of the, of the road. There's a concrete ramp leading up to the black off-road bike path. And as you can see, that ramp is a lot longer than the typical pedestrian curb ramp. Uh, report 29 dealt with improved railway crossing design for heavy vehicles, and that's been in, that update has been included in part four. This report identifies uh, road design improvements to better cater for safe passage of heavy vehicles through railway level crossings. Guidance has been incorporated in the Guide to Road Design Part 4 regarding the importance of sealing the approaches of a railway crossing as that provides a stable surface for the vehicle's deceleration and acceleration compared to the unsealed road. Sealing the approaches also enable pavement marking to be installed and that improves the delineation and increases driver awareness of the crossing. Um, it was identified during this project that duplication material was contained within the Guide to Roadside Part 4 and the Guide to Traffic Management Part 6. So the information was available in both of these guides and it was duplicated. So 
decision has been made that that information should only be in one place. And the guide to traffic management is as accessible as the guide to road design. So the, the information that was duplicated was about the selection of the intersection type, including a basic description of the types and the warrants for their selection. So some examples of the types of diagram that were deleted from part four because they are in the guide to traffic management part six. So on the left hand side, you can see the, the types of the schematic types of, of uh, intersection treatment that, that are now solely within the guide to traffic management part six. And then on the right, that warrant diagram which shows how you choose the type of um, intersection treatment that, that you would need, whether it's a, a channelized, a basic or an auxiliary. That, that warrant information is now only within the guide to traffic management part six and it's not in part four. Um, just to reassure you that within part four, and it's actually in part 4a, uh, these types of diagrams that show the dimensions of intersections remain in that part 4a. So the one on, one on the left, all the, all the dimensions that are needed to set up a, um, a channelised T-junction are, are still there in part 4a. And then the, what, the one on the right showing a a left turn island and the dimensions needed for there. All those all those diagrams remain in the guide to road design part 4a. So this whole exercise of looking at all those reports led to amendments to most of the guide to road design. Um, the ones that have been published to date uh, this in the last year are the guide to road design part one and the guide to road design part 5a. The other parts, of the updates are to be published this year as part of the other projects. And in fact, uh, part six has already been published uh, just this, this year, last month. I'll then hand back to Madeline to modify their questions tonight. Thanks, Mel. Okay, we have a lot of questions that have come through. Um, we might start with a few for Malcolm. Um, so Malcolm, slide 15. And Catherine, are you going to do the slides for me, please? Um, on slide 15, what tips do you have for a local government seeking to develop a policy that mandates the use of safe system assessments in its planning, design, delivery and benefit realisation framework? What are the main challenges they might face and what tips can you offer to overcome them? Yeah, thanks, Madeline. Um, good question. Um, obviously, we've got this safe system assessment framework, but how, how do we um, you know, get, it, get it used on the ground? Um, so uh, some, some of the state uh, road agencies have some guidelines on how they um, implement 
uh, the use of safe system assessments um, and how detailed the assessments are sort of based on the type of project. Um, I guess I guess for the local government, it's 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 key to consider um, what you're trying to achieve with the safe system assessment framework. And you're obviously not going to you know you you may not in incorporate it with every project you do. Um, in terms of, of implementing it throughout um, the design stage as as early as possible is is always useful. Um, I guess the recommendations that may come out of a safe system assessment are always easier to implement earlier on in the design um, of your road infrastructure. Um, but yeah, I guess as a starting point, having a look at what some of the state um, road agencies have in terms of their framework and guidelines is a good start. Thanks, Nathan. Okay, next question we have from Chris Wong. So I think, Noel, you might want to answer this one. Okay. About the safety barriers for heavy vehicles, is there an approved barrier for more than 80 tonne vehicles travelling at 80 kilometres an hour? Some PBSA doubles are approaching this type of mass. Um, yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's quite a load, uh, 80 tonnes. I, I believe some of the, some of the uh, TL6 barriers, which are, Quite high for, uh, to contain heavy vehicles could contain those, but I I doubt whether they'd be up to the the 60 tons. Um, but yeah, I can I can make inquiries about that one and see whether see whether there are some proprietary products that that do that. Arb at the moment is uh, undertaking a, a project. Where we're crash testing uh, a B double into a into a bridge barrier, so those sorts of uh, crash testings are happening with the acknowledgement that you know, the heavier vehicles need the need the bigger, stronger barriers. Thanks, Noel. Okay, Malcolm, back to you. I think slide twenty seven, Katharina, if you can find that one for me, please. How do pavement bars cope with motorcycles, Malcolm? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so yeah, obviously um, pavement bars are raised, um, raised sections, little sections on the road, um, causing a hazard to motorcyclists and cyclists as well. Um, so one of one of the bits of guidance we've included in in the guide to road design in this section is, I guess, um, uh, creating a spacing between the pavement bars themselves to be, be wider than the the um, wheelbase of a motorcycle, so that might be two meters. Um, I guess uh, some of the pavement bar layouts you'll see um, sort of towards each end, they're spaced quite closely together. So um, keeping that in mind with um, motorcycles, um, you're considering implementing a pavement bar. Um, the other thing there is, I guess, the, the conspicuity of the pavement bar itself. So in that photo in the slide, um, so they're painted yellow, um, and that's quite good in that photo. But they obviously do fade over time. So um, you know, keeping up your maintenance um, to ensure that they're you know readily seen um, is important too. 
Thanks, Malcolm. Okay, I think, Mel, this one might be back to you. Okay. Median turning bays and lanes. Yes. How do they differ from the New Zealand flush medians and are both used here in Australia? Um, yeah, good, good example. Um, for, in my understanding, that is the Queen, uh, the New Zealand ones are exactly the same. They've just got a different term for them. They call them flush medium, but they're they're the same as our as our turning bay. Is that your understanding, Malcolm? Is that, yeah. Yeah, I think it's just the terminology. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. Next question: How do you differentiate the rural painted median for separation from the urban painted median for turning? So, I'm not sure what slide that's on. I think that rural painted median might be more of a wide center line treatment. Yes, that what we were discussing yes. earlier. Yeah. Yes. I can even answer that one for you guys. <laughs> so what um, what we were talking about before the webinar is around how a um, in the urban environment they use painted medians which are generally slightly wider. It's more than one and a half meters in width, and they have painted chevrons. Whereas in a rural environment, it's generally more of a um, wide centerline treatment, which can be Oh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys. What is it? Less than down to one meter wide, but it doesn't have any um, painted chevrons on the road. Okay, next question here from Noel, I think. Is there any guide slide 29? Sorry, Ekaterina. Is there any guidance provided on reducing the width of the wide center line treatment when specified on a constrained section of road, like a mountainous road with steep batters? up and down slopes. Might be slide 28. 28, sorry. Mm -hmm. oh, yes, there, there is guidance within that section as to what you can reduce the, the lane. So it's lane widths and shoulders that we were asking, asking about. Um, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Reducing the width of the wide center line within a constrained section of roads? Uh, yes, yeah, the, the, that, I mean, the preferred, preferred width of the wide centre line is the, is the one metre or thereabouts, but they, they can be reduced down further. Um, obviously that increases somewhat the risk, so you need to do a risk assessment based on that. But yeah, yes, they can, they can be reduced. And in fact, they're an expansion of the existing double barrier lines. So anywhere in between double barrier line and one metre is going to be some improvement for that benefits of that wide centre line. Okay, we have a couple of questions on median turn bays here. So what is the minimum width allowed for median turn bays? Mm -hmm. it, it depends on what state you're in. Um, yeah, no, I mean, turn bays can, can be down to very narrow, depending on how constrained the site is. Um, and that the minimum width would be 
would be virtually uh, the width of the width of a vehicle. So, uh, if if you primarily only got cars, you could probably get down to two meters. I'm guessing, but if you're providing for trucks, well, you you'd need to leave leave it a bit wider than that, say two and a half meters. But yeah, I would think you could get down to two meters if it was only for cars, and it was a constrained situation. And staying on these medium-term bays, how are they assessed or considered with respect to traffic volumes and crash risk? And, sorry, um, and opposing turning vehicles entering the bay simultaneously. Yeah, I mean that that that's the first thought when you see when you see those painted arrows on the road, and you think. Those those are those people are going to um, oppose each other on the turns, but um, because they're turn based, they're a lot they're a lot slower. Um, drivers treat them with respect and and use them as that as a convenience way of, of um, moving out of the way. And as far as using them on volumes and turning volumes, yeah, you need to need to assess the road. See what the see what the turning volumes are. Um, see whether there is any incidence of of turning traffic um, being involved in accidents. So it's a it's a risk based of approach, but it 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 has the potential to uh, lessen those turning turning uh, accidents from from such a road. Okay, thanks, Noel. Um, Katarina, can we have slide uh, 33, please? Noel, are bands given for the speed and risk curves, e.g. reflecting different pedestrian ages? Oh, yeah, I, I haven't seen that as a variation on this, on this graph. I mean, it is, it is uh, basically a, an indication of, of where the vulnerability of the of people involved, <clears throat> uh, collision speed and probability, and that is a that's just a probability on the on the vertical axis. So, yes, I would imagine there'd be some variations within there as well. Um, so it was age of pedestrians mm. and yeah, reflecting the different pedestrian ages. I think is what. I yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, the older, the older people involved in in accidents are more likely to um, suffer more serious injuries and to take longer to recover. So there is a variation depending on the age of the person involved. Okay, this one might be a Malcolm question. It's noted that the information duplicated between the design and traffic management guides will be removed. However, the intersection treatment information is spread between part four and part four A. Will this also be consolidated? Yes, that's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah. It's sort of come up quite a bit um, recently. Um, noticed it um, through one of the other projects we're doing. So. Um, we're currently, um, we've currently got a project where we're looking at all the part fours, um, essentially. Um, as part of that project, we are um, putting the intersection guidance in the sort of right spot. 
So part four will be your more general um, advice and, and those um, treatments that Noel showed on his slide um, would, would now live uh, all together in part 4a rather than being over both parts. So um, that's, yeah, we're, we're currently working through that and that will be sort of published this year. Yeah. Thanks, Malcolm. Okay, uh, what's the time? We might have time for one more before I hand back to Katerina. Um, Albert, Paolucci, I hope I've said that correctly, <laughs> said TMR allows reduction of the Y center line reduction based on speed. So 100 kilometers an hour is one meter, 80 kilometers an hour is 800, 60 kilometers an hour is 60. Is this consistent with the ARB thinking? I'm not sure we put that in the So that was width of, of which? Of the wide center line. Of the wide center line. I yeah that that is that is consistent and I we've got something on that just recently haven't we Malcolm on that in the upgrades to part the part fours but this is yeah this is turn treatment um yeah I don't think we've gone into it that specifically in terms of um the design speed of the road. Um, something that might be able to look at as part of one of the other projects, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, if that's a TMR practice, um, that can be, can be looked at as part of the part four project now. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we might follow up on that, Albert, actually. Yeah. That's a good one to include. Thank you. Um, okay, I might just stop it there. Now we will provide answers to all the questions as part of this webinar, but I think I need to hand back to Katarina now to do the final couple of slides. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Um, thanks Madeline. Um, yes, as Madeline said, we will respond to the questions that are still left in writing and we'll send it to you after the session. Um, and uh, before we let you go, just a uh, few more slides. Um, firstly, uh, we have a couple of uh, surveys open at the moment and we would appreciate your input. Um, the first survey um, aims to inform the shape and direction of the guide to road safety part two, safe roads. Um, and the second survey uh, seeks to understand the views of auditors government trainers, assessors, and industry to move to a harmonized approach to road safety audit practices um, across Australia and New Zealand. So both surveys close on Monday, uh, 28th February, and the links are provided in this slide. And uh, um, as you can see, we um, have a variety of sessions coming up. Um, so for more information, please um, visit our website and register. Um, and you can also subscribe to our news alerts. And as usual, after we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. Please take a couple of uh, minutes um, to send us your feedback. We do read it all and it helps us to understand what you liked or didn't like about the session and what suggestions you have for future webinars. Um, once again, today's session is being recorded and we will let you know uh, when the uh, recording is available on our website. Um, thanks again, uh, everyone. Stay well and safe um, and we will see you next time.